If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 4. As I said previously, our scripture reading this morning uh, is Acts chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 22. And that very last verse uh, of the paragraph that I read earlier reminds us that this is really part of a larger narrative, a, a narrative that you'll remember began back in chapter 3. But the very last verse tells us that the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And remember, this is the man that Peter and John had met on their way into the temple. They were going into the temple at the hour of prayer, and on their way in, they, they met this man, a man who sat outside the temple day after day, week after week, year after year, begging alms. And he, and he sat there begging alms because he was lame, he was unable to work. And so therefore he depended upon the, the charity and the, the generosity of others to, to get his daily bread. And as Peter and John met him, they uh, looked at him and he expected, you know, no people make eye contact with me, the people are going to give me something. So he was expecting to receive something. But they said to him, we do not have any silver and gold to give to you. But what we do have, we give in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And immediately the man was made well. Immediately his, his legs and his ankles were restored. And he began walking and leaping and praising God. And understandably, that miracle, and the man's rejoicing in that miracle, gathered the attention of those who were around. And it wasn't too long before a crowd had gathered. And that crowd, Peter and John, began to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The, the Messiah who had been crucified in Jerusalem, but whom God had raised again from, from the dead. And as they were proclaiming that good news and calling the people to respond in repentance and faith, the, the authorities became annoyed. And they, they moved in and they arrested them. And now it's the next day after having spent the night in jail, they continue to stand before this council on trial, a council which could potentially take their lives in the same way that they had taken the life of Jesus. So they stand before this council, and as they are standing before the council, they continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. They, they continue to proclaim salvation in His name and in His name alone. And it is that boldness, that, that boldness to proclaim Christ, even before the council that Luke comments on in verse 13. Look again at what he says. He says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were an uneducated common man, and they were astonished. It's that boldness that I want us to focus on first this morning. The, the boldness of the apostles, the boldness that we saw first in their willingness to even preach Jesus in the first place. Now, you probably think of street preaching as bold because you wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> when I worked at UNCA, when I was a campus minister at the University of North Carolina in Nashville, there were about three ministers who kind of made the rounds of the universities in North Carolina. They would come and they would sit up on the quad and they would preach. And I was always so thankful that I didn't have to do that. It was embarrassing, and they would be mocked by the, the students, and I was so glad that I didn't have to do that, because, because we just really don't like the idea of street preaching. That's not what makes the apostles bold here. 
Yes, it's one thing to, to preach the gospel on the campus of, of the University of North Carolina. You'll, you'll probably be made fun of. You will probably be mocked. But, but they were not preaching the gospel on the street, on the, on the campus of University of North Carolina. They were preaching the gospel in the streets of Jerusalem, in the very town where the one whom they proclaimed had recently been murdered. It's a whole nother level of boldness. It's a, it's a whole nother level of, of courage for them to stand there to proclaim Christ as God's Messiah, as the one who, who died for our sins and rose again victorious over death. It is an entirely different thing for them to stand there to proclaim Christ in the town where Jesus had been crucified. Because they knew that by doing so, they were potentially subjecting themselves to the same fate. And so yes, the, the apostles were bold, not just because they were preaching publicly, that's a big deal to us, they were bold because they were preaching Christ in Jerusalem. And they were bolder still when they continued to preach Christ before the, the council. The, the council that had already demonstrated its power by having him arrested, by having him spend the night in jail. Now standing before that council, that, that council which included the captain of the, the guard and the, the high priest and, the, and these other men of, of prominence. Standing before the very men who had orchestrated the, the murder of Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Now standing before them, they continue to not only preach Christ, but to point to the authorities and to say, the one you killed is the one you must now recognize or else face the consequences. It is bold for them to continue to, to proclaim that gospel even before the authorities. And I want to suggest to you that we need to see this boldness. We need to see the boldness in the, in the face of the, the threats that they were facing. Because the reality is that we will all face similar situations. I'm not suggesting that we will all stand before official courts with the uh, authority to, to have us put to death. There are cases where that happens even today in the world. Just this week I was hearing about one of the girls who had been taken captive by Boko Haram. The, the other girls had all been released, but this one girl was a Christian, and they kept her and said they would not release her until she renounced her faith in her Savior. And of all the girls who had been taken, she is the one who was never yet released. There are those who, who continue to, to face literal life and death choices because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We are not there yet. But we will all face pressure. We will all face the temptation to, to renounce Christ. We will all face those, those authorities that do not want us to, to confess Him or to honor Him as Lord in our lives. Maybe you have a boss who doesn't want you to honor Jesus in the way you keep the books. Maybe you have a boss who doesn't want you to honor Jesus as Lord in the way that you talk to your customers. Maybe you have friends who would prefer that you not honor Jesus in your social engagements. They would, they would prefer you not to continue to, to act like a follower of Christ when you're hanging out because it spoils their fun. They would much rather you join them in their flood of debauchery. Maybe it's your own flesh that is pressing against you not to honor Jesus because there's some cherished sin, there's some favorite sin that you want to 
indulge. You know the, the situations, you know the pressures that you face. We all face powers, we all face authorities that challenge us not to confess Christ. We may not stand before official councils. We, we may not have people with guns telling us to, to renounce Jesus Christ as Lord, but we all face pressure every day not to honor Jesus as Lord of our lives. And when we face those pressures, we are called to the same boldness that we see on display here in the apostles. And so we need to know the source of that boldness. We need to know how we can stand firm just as they stood firm before the council. And so what is it that enables the, the apostles to, to stand firm? We, we know it's not anything inherently in themselves because we saw them scatter like sheep on the night that Jesus was betrayed. This same Peter, remember, denied Jesus even before a servant girl. And so it's not, it's not inherently that he is a courageous man. There's something else going on here. So what is the source of this boldness that allows Peter and John to confess Christ as their Lord and to call on all to bow the knee to him? Look again with me at verse 13. First notice what it's not. The source of their boldness is not their, their education or their, their ordination. We, we see this in, uh, when, when uh, Luke tells us that the authorities perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Now, to say that they were uneducated doesn't mean that they had no education of any kind. But it means that they did not have the, the official education of the religious authorities. They had not been to seminary, we might say, in today's language. They, they did not have the, the training to address a court, to, to address a council like this, and to, to address a council so, so boldly. They, they did not have the, the training to be instructing others in religion. And not only did they not have the training, but they did not have the position. To say that they were common means that they were, they were laymen. These are not ordained leaders. These are not people who have been officially installed in, in positions of authority in the church. They were uneducated, common men. They, they did not have seminary training. They did not have ordination. Now that doesn't mean that the seminary training and ordination are bad things. Obviously, we, we believe in the value of education here in uh, this church and in our denomination. We, we actually require our uh, pastors to be trained. And we, we continue to ordain them and to ordain elders and deacons to, to positions of authority in the church. We, we believe in training. We believe in ordination. But we need to understand that training and ordination are not in and of themselves the source of boldness. They are not what enable us to stand firm in the face of temptations to, to deny Jesus. The source of true boldness is found Elsewhere, We see it in the second thing that the authorities notice about Peter and John. Look again. It says they recognize that they were uneducated, common men. But then it says, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. What was the source of their boldness? The source of their boldness was that they had been with Jesus. So what does that mean? What does, it, what does it mean to say that they had been with Jesus? It doesn't mean that they had been with him once. As we were watching the, the Super Bowl this 
uh, past uh, Sunday, we were uh, my family was exchanging texts, and because we all kind of watched the game together, obviously we were all in our own little isolated pod watching the game on our own. But as we were as we were watching the game, my brother sent out a picture to the family text of him with Gronk, the tight end for uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And not only did he send out a picture of, of him with Gronk, he sent out a picture of him wearing Gronk's one of Gronk's Super Bowl rings. He had been with Gronk, and he had actually worn one of his Super Bowls, which looked massive on his hair. Because his, uh, my brother's hands are not quite the same size as the giant tight end. And so my brother had been with Gronk. He doesn't know him, but he had been with him on one occasion through some work event. That's not what they mean. It's not that they were with him one time and got their picture made. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the way to be with Jesus. When he says that they had been with Jesus, he means that, that they had been with him as his disciples. They had been with him as his apprentices. They had lived with him. They had followed him. And because they had been with him throughout his ministry as his disciples, they had been with him when he was betrayed, when he was arrested, when he was crucified, and most significantly when he rose again from the dead. They had been with him. And therefore, having seen him crucified, having seen him rise again victorious over death, they knew him to be the resurrection and the life. And we know this is prominent in their thinking because they've been talking about it from the beginning of the book. They were selecting Matthias. They talked about Jesus Christ crucified and raised. Then again on Pentecost, they talked about Jesus Christ crucified and raised. Then when they were preaching on the streets of Jerusalem, they talked about Jesus crucified and raised. And now even here before the council, they, they remind them that Jesus was crucified and raised. It, it has transformed their thinking because they were with the risen Christ. And therefore, because they were with the risen Christ, they could hear him saying in their minds, fear not the one who can kill only the body. Because I am the resurrection. Stand with me. And they can do you no harm. Peter will actually say that in his first letter. He says, who is there to harm you if the risen Christ is for you. This is the source of their boldness. They knew Jesus Christ crucified and risen for them. They had been with Jesus. But of course that leaves us asking, what good is that to us? If, if, if the source of their boldness was that they had been with Jesus that they had been physically with the, the crucified and risen Lord, with the fact that they had, they had been with him in the 40 days after his resurrection, that they had eaten with him, they had spent time with him, that they had sat at his feet, that they had heard him, him teaching. How does that help us? Because we can't be with Jesus in the same way. We can't bodily, physically be with Jesus in the way that, that they were. Except we can. No, we can't be with him bodily, but we can be with him truly. We can be with Jesus truly. Jesus himself said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will be with you. And he keeps that promise. 
And we need to recognize that we can be with Jesus. In fact, Luke has already shown us how the early church was with Jesus. When he, when he described it at the end of, of chapter 2, when he described them as, as with Jesus by the Spirit through first the Word, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And in the Word, they were with Jesus. And we need to recognize that when we come to the Word of God, we are not coming to, to just the words of men. We are coming to the living, active Word of God. God meets us in and through the Word. This Word accomplishes His purposes by this Word. He uh, abides with His people. This is the, the Word of God, and it comes to us as such. And when we give ourselves to the Word, we are with Jesus. And not only when we come to the Word, but when we pray, as we meditate and reflect upon that Word, as we, as we devote our lives to the prayers, to those hours of prayers, that, that regular communion with God in prayer, we, again, are with Jesus. We're not just thinking about Him, but He meets us. He is, he is with us. You see, when we devote ourselves to the Word and to, and to prayer, we are, we're not devoting ourselves to, to disciplines that we do in order to uh, impress God with our devotion. You've heard me say it so many times, but, but we need to uh, rid ourselves of the thought that, that Word and prayer are things that we do so God will see us and be impressed. That's not what we're doing. When we come to the Word, when we, when we come before God in prayer, we, we are coming to be with Him. We are coming to meet Him, the living God. And He meets us in the Word. He meets us in prayer. He meets us in worship. The, the breaking of bread, the, the coming together for the, for the corporate worship of God. When we gather together, God is with us. The Son is, is with us. He inhabits the praises of His people. This is not just something we do to, to, to hear a pep talk. This is not something that we do because it's, it's what we've always done. When we gather together, whether there be uh, many or few, when we gather together, we gather together in the presence of the living God. And Jesus is with us. He's with us here this morning. We are with Him. And we are with Him. He is with us when we gather together in fellowship. This week I had the privilege, my family had the privilege of being ministered to by so many of you. As Sarah and I were both in bed with COVID, you provided my family with meals. And we felt not only your love, but the love of God in Christ ministered through you. The fellowship, through the fellowship, through the, the community of the, the body of believers. We are with Jesus. Do you see it? The disciples were with Jesus. They were with the risen Lord because they knew him. They were bold in the face of the temptation to, to cower. And we can be with Jesus in the same way. Not bodily, not physically, but we can be with him through his word. We can be with him through prayer. We can be with him through worship. We can be with him through the fellowship. He is with us. We are with him. And as we are with Him, as we, we abide with Him, He strengthens us to stand firm in the face of any threat. So how do we learn to stand firm when, when those with power and authority are, are challenging us not to honor Christ as Lord, not to confess Him as our King? 
We are made bold by being with Him. By being with Him in the Word. By being with Him in prayer. By being with Him in worship. By being with Him in the fellowship of His own body on earth. In these ways, we will be made bold. Not only do we need to see the, the boldness of the apostles in this text, we also need to see the, the cowardice of the authorities. We need to see the, the cowardice of their unbelief. And again, let me offer two caveats before we, we dive into that. First, I, I'm not suggesting that all doubts and all questioning is, is cowardly. You may have real questions about the faith. And if you have real questions, I would love the opportunity to, to talk with you. I'd love the, the opportunity to sit down with you and, and discuss whatever questions and whatever, whatever doubts that you have. I'm not suggesting that all doubts and all, um, all questioning are, are cowardly. But much of it is. Much of the time our doubting is, is not a real questioning so much as it is a resistance to the truth. And that's exactly what we see here in these authorities. We, we see not an a, a honest questioning, not an honest doubting, but we see a resistance to the truth that can only be called cowardly. And I think we need to look at that because that kind of resistance to the truth isn't only out there. It's something that all of us, at some level, even those of us who, who believe, struggle with. We're all like that father who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so by looking at the nature of their unbelief, I think we can find help for our own struggles with doubt. So let's look at it more closely. As I said, the, the heart of their cowardice, the, the, the heart of, of, of their lack of boldness, is that refusal to acknowledge and submit to the truth. Rather, rather than submitting to the truth, they want to suppress it. We, we see this in verse 14. It says, again, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Why, why are they struggling? Why, why are they struggling to oppose the, uh, the apostles? Because the man whom they healed in Jesus' name is standing right there. He is, he is the, the testimony. He is the evidence. He is the proof that what the disciples are saying is true. And, and they recognize it. And all of Jerusalem seems to, to recognize it. And the authorities don't know what to do. It's why they send them out of the room to, to privately confer. It reminds me of the time when, when Jesus put a question to uh, the uh, religious authorities about John the Baptist. And they're like, well, if we say that he's from God, they're going to ask him why we didn't listen to him. And if we say that he's not, the people are going to get really mad. So we're just going to say we don't know. It's not an honest answer. It's how do we get out of this? That's what the authorities are trying to do. They're, they're not trying to discover the truth. They are trying to suppress it. They're trying to, to maintain the status quo. They don't actually care what is true. And so they, they bring the apostles back in. and they, they charge them not to speak. And when the apostles politely refuse, they threaten them. And tell them not to speak or else. And we're going to come back to the Apostles' civil disobedience next Sunday. So if you want to hear more about that, you've got to come back next week. And we're, we'll, we'll focus on that next week. We'll, we'll look at that in more detail. But, but for now, this morning, I simply want us to, to notice just the cowardice of the authorities' approach. They, they know the truth, but they refuse to acknowledge it. They, they know the truth, but they want to suppress it because they don't want it to be true. 
They don't want Jesus to be Lord. They don't want the gospel the, the apostles are, are proclaiming to be true. Because they know it's going to be costly. They know that if Jesus is who the apostles proclaim him to be, then it changes everything. If he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, if he is God's Messiah, if he is the Savior of sinners, if he is the way to the Father, then everything changes. And at least that much they get right. They understand that to acknowledge the message that the apostles are proclaiming is no small thing. In fact, it changes everything. Every aspect of your life will be transformed if you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Or else you haven't acknowledged Him as Lord. The apostles uh, are, are proclaiming a, an all-inclusive gospel. A gospel that changes everything. And the, apostles, and the authorities know it. And they don't want it to be true. But of course, not wanting something to be true doesn't make it untrue. In fact, the evidence is, is staring them in the face. As I said, this 40-year-old man, born lame, now healed, stands before them walking and leaping and praising God. And the question we must ask ourselves is whether or not we think along the same lines as the authorities. How often do we want to suppress the truth simply because we don't want it to be true? The unbelief that we struggle with as believers, that unbelief that continues to wage war against our soul, that unbelief that we daily do battle with and seek to, to put to death, it is the same type of unbelief. It is, it is the same type of unbelief that simply doesn't want Jesus to be king. Because in this moment, we'd rather rule our own lives. That's the, that's the nature of unbelief. It's an unbelief that, that sees the evidence, but rejects it. Not because it's not compelling, but because we don't want it to be true. Now you may think that's a little unfair, because... A 40-year-old man born lame, now healed, isn't actually standing before us here this morning. We don't actually have the same type of evidence that they had standing in the courtroom. But again, I'd say we do. He does stand before us this morning in the pages of Scripture. Think about why do most people deny the historicity of the gospel? Why, why do most people deny that this is, this is true historical reality? Well, even the scholars, if you listen to them, they, they deny that this book is true because they know that these types of things don't happen. They, they sometimes phrase it a little bit more sophisticatedly than that. But basically what it boils down to is we know those type of things don't happen. And therefore we know that, that these stories must be made up. We know that the early church must have embellished the, the accounts. And this is why scholars are always going off on, on, on some search for the historical Jesus, trying to find the Jesus behind the legend. But you understand that's don't be fooled. 
scholarship. That is pure prejudice. We know these types of things don't happen. Therefore, if you're telling me these things happen, you must have made it up. Well, the whole point is that these kind of things don't happen. That these kind of things are not ordinary. That this is a miracle. This is a supernatural display of God's power that, that, that God graciously gave as a, as a testimony to the reality of the, the message being proclaimed by His chosen servants. And so, yes, of course these kind of things don't happen. But that they did happen says something. It says something significant. You see, the scriptures are presented to us as the eyewitness testimony of those who were there. They're presented to us as history. This is Luke's uh, introduction, remember, all the way back at the beginning of his gospel. He says, I am a historian who did the research, who consulted the sources, who talked to the eyewitnesses. And again and again, we, we see evidence that this is the, the testimony of eyewitnesses. Last week, I, I mentioned this, these men, John and Alexander, who stand with the, the council. We don't even know who they are. Given the rest of the scriptures, there's no reason why John and Alexander should be mentioned. And yet, we're given their names because they were there. There were people who that first generation would have recognized. And so, yes, we have eyewitness testimony of people in that generation who wrote these things down for the church. It's significant that it was written in that generation. Think about what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, listen, Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are still alive. Why would he say that? He says that because he's, he's challenging them to, to check it out. Be like the Bereans. Go investigate. Go find out for yourself. Most of them are still alive. You can talk to them. These stories are true. These things, as Paul will say later in the book of Acts, these things were not done in a corner. They were not done in a closet. They were public events that everyone knows the truth of. And we now have the written record before us. And on purely a human level, regardless of the fact that these are inspired by the Holy Spirit, purely on a human level, we have reliable testimony to these things. And so, yes, the man born lame, now healed, stands before us this morning in the pages of Scripture. The question we must ask ourselves is, will we acknowledge the truth of what his walking and leaping and praising God confirms. You see, unbelief so often is, is not a response, a rational response to a lack of evidence. But it is the response of a sinful heart that does not want Jesus to be the Lord. And so how do we overcome that sort of unbelief? How do we un overcome that sort of, of cowardice? I want to suggest to you two ways this morning, two ways that, that we can uh, attack our unbelief, the unbelief that we deal with and the unbelief that, that our family and friends sometimes deal with. How do we go to war with such unbelief? And the first thing that we need to remind ourselves is, is simply the fact that denying the truth doesn't change the truth. Denying the truth doesn't, doesn't change the truth. If you live as if the truth is not true, you will eventually shipwreck your life on the rocks of reality. You know this from experience. You cannot simply deny the truth. Eventually, it will come home to roost. 
Eventually, you will have to, to deal with the truth. And, and so just at a very pragmatic level, we, we need to recognize that denying the truth does not change the truth. But that by itself is not sufficient to overcome our unbelief. Because we're not all that rational, no matter how we think about ourselves. Uh, we can live with our heads in the sand. And so we need to know more than simply that not denying the truth doesn't, that denying the truth doesn't change the truth. We also need to know, and we need to remind ourselves that this is good news. You see, the lie of the devil is that we don't want this to be true. The lie of the devil is that we don't want Jesus to be Lord. The, the lie of the devil is that it would be so much better if we sat upon the throne, if we were free to do what we want to do. In fact, that is the modern gospel. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. But if you think that leads to heaven on earth, go read Judges. The truth is, we want this to be true. The truth is that it is good news that, that Jesus is King. If, any, if 2020 proved anything to us, it proved that we cannot take care of ourselves, that, that our strongest arms, our best soldiers, our, our most sophisticated chariots are not enough to protect and preserve our lives. We are out of our element if we are on our own. We are, if we are without God, Paul says in Ephesians, we are without hope in this present evil age. We need a king who is all-powerful, all-wise, who is all-loving. We need a king whose delight is to give us his kingdom, who, who has the ability to, to do it. Who knows what is best for his people. We need a king like Jesus. We need a king who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for his people. We need a king through whose blood we can be forgiven for our sins and reconciled to our heavenly Father. We need a king through whom we can be qualified for an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. We need Jesus to be king. This is good news. Satan comes to you and he, and he challenges you and he, and he tempts you to, to think that wouldn't it be nice if you could just get away from that Lord for a little while? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just be the captain of your own ship for a little while? No, it would not. It is the best news in the world that the all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving Jesus Christ sits upon the throne. This is the good news. Your God reigns. And because he reigns, we have hope. Because he reigns, we can be forgiven. Because he reigns, we can be heirs of a coming kingdom that is unperishable, undefiled, that has an unfading glory. And so not only is it true that, that we must acknowledge the truth, it is true that we get to acknowledge the truth. We get to live like Jesus is king. Because he is. And so when Satan comes to you with the temptation to pretend that these things are not true, not only do you remember that denying them won't help, but you need to say back to him, why would I want these things to be untrue? This is the solid rock of my salvation. This is the foundation of my living 
hope. I have been born again from the dead to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for me, even as I am kept for it by the very power of God through faith. That is the gospel that we get to believe. Because God has declared it to us with absolute clarity through the boldness of the apostles. And because that gospel is true, we have a sure refuge against the cowardice of unbelief. And we have the freedom to be absolutely bold in faith. And we proclaim this gospel not only to ourselves, but to a world eager for hope eager to hear this good news, whether they know it or not. So let us believe this gospel together. Let us cling to the hope of the apostles. And let us live as people of faith, knowing that our faith is not based on fiction. Our faith, our faith is based on fact. On the fact of the one risen from the dead, who now reigns and who is coming again. And because we have such a hope, a true hope, that's why we call this good Let's believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you give us the boldness of faith and, and protect us from the cowardice of unbelief, Father. May we, may we be strengthened to stand firm in the hope of the gospel, even this morning, that we meditate upon these words, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name.